0: Welcome back after our, our week off hiatus. Okay, now it there was last week. There was a beautiful shem Yishmuel that I wanted to share, and Baruch Hashem, it's still appropriate for this week, mixed in with a shem on this parsha, and that really has to do with the title. I, I entitled the share. Good evening. Yes, I entitled the share continuum. Okay, and because that's really what's happening between Breshis and Shmos, when we look at the Ramban's introduction to Shmos, we see the Ramban speaks about how. Really, all of creation is built up by what happens in Bereshis. And now, this is the book of the children. This is the book where it comes into play. And it's connected with Avav. Okay, That means that what's happening here is intimately connected to what happened in Bereshis, and certainly at the end of Bereshis. The Medrash points out the strange repetition that we have of the names of Yaakov and his sons who come down to Mitzrayim. We had that before when they came down. And here we go through it again. And the Medrash says that the names in the first time were names that were listed in terms of Golas. Now the names are listed in terms of Geula. And the Medrash goes through different hints in the names that refer to the Pesukim of the Jewish people getting redeemed. So the same people that started off the Golos, the, Avram Avinu was told about, that you'll be, aracha you'll be these strangers in a strange land. That was fulfilled by Yaakov and his children coming to Mitzrayim. But the geulah, as Hashem told Yaakov, I will be going down with you to Mitzrayim, and I will bring you up, and as the Mepharshim say, not just bring you up, but come up with you. So that process is starting here, even though what we see in this parsha, the beginning of the subjugation in Mitzrayim, is what we really identify as the golos. So let's try to take a look at the two different periods that were there, because if we don't pay attention, a lot of time went by without the Chumash telling us much of what happened at all. Last week's parasha, Vaychi Yaakov, Mitzrayim Yaakov lived in Mitzrayim 17 years. Then we cut to Yaakovin who's not feeling well. Looks it's like it's the end of his life. Yosef come down, he gives the brachas, and that's it. What did he do in Mitzrayim for 17 years? Right? We imagine, you know, I don't know, some kind of like vacation village, I don't know, senior housing. He goes boating with the grandchildren on the Nile or something. You know, nice pictures of Yaakov's retirement. What did he do? Right? What was happening? Now, Chazal say that the Sheva Esrei Shona, the 17 years are gematria tov, are good. That Yaakov Avinu, those were his best years. Okay, so then it's strange that those best years were the ones in Mitzrayim. Why was it that our Kodesh Barucho arranged that finally in his life, which was a constant series of tsars, right, which he mentions, and really from pre-birth, they say, he was suffering from Esau chasing him in the womb, all the way to everything we saw through Bereshis and here in Mitzrayim there was this idea of Tov Also, what was the life of the Shvatim like at that time? What were they doing 17 years in Egypt? You see some pyramids, you do some sightseeing, then what? What what, what were they doing? And what was the point of it? And what did those 17 years have to do with the transition now which is really the end of their period and it tells us again that they came down to Mitzrayim. So the um, Medrash definitely ties in Yaakov Avinu's last stage of life with what's happening in this week's parasha, Right? It says, Es Yaakov, they came with Yaakov, Ishu Peso. So that means that Yaakov Avinu wasn't part of the group, so to speak, that was going into Golas. But they came connected to him. Why did they have to be connected to him? It says that they needed to be connected to Yaakov Avinu, who was mesugol b'mitzvahs, means he collected mitzvahs, and he reached Shleimus, he reached Holness, and he created the 12 Shvatim. So let's try to see what that means and what's going on with it. In last week's Parsha so the Shemesh Shmuel tells us a bit about what was happening in those 17 years of Yaakov and why they were so important we have to understand that always right the czar kodesh says that the story that you read in the parsha is simply the external clothing of the story that's happening we see egypt which is a country we see slavery with mud and bricks by the way i did find the thing online a little video they still make bricks with nile river mud and straw There are still people who make them in the same way um, we see the fact of Yosef coming down, there's a famine, there's food, there's money, he's gathering money from the people, the Jews have cattle. What's going on with all this stuff? What does it represent? So, Mitzrayim is the great-granddaddy of all Goliaths. All the exiles that will be there, everything that Am Yisrael has to go through and has to break through is represented by Mitzrayim. The very word Mitzrayim... It's based on the idea of meitzer, that which can limit you. Limiting, for the Jewish people, means to be very focused on this world only. To lose the perspective of the grandeur of where you're coming from, and who you are, and what you're connected to, and to be locked into what's called b'chomeru to mud and bricks. That mud and bricks, again, the mefreshim also say or a symbol of getting physicalized. Now, what was Egypt about? It's called Erevas HaOretz. Okay? Yosef, when he's addressing the brothers and accusing them of being spies, he says, you came to see Erevas HaOretz, literally the nakedness of the land. Ervas represents the idea of arayus of forbidden relations. Eshdis Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, was viewed as an embodiment of the power of Mitzrayim, of the power of Egypt, doing battle with Yosef. So Egypt was a land of desire. Now, desire takes form in two particular areas in our life. Chazal said that we have to be particularly careful with gezel and arayos, with stolen money, right? That doesn't necessarily mean you mug somebody, but having sticky fingers in whatever way one does it. And forbidden relations, A person's nefesh, meaning a person's very life force, desires those things. And part of why those things are ultimate examples of desire, because they're not a particular item. They are very wide-ranging, right? When a person has desire for relations, it's something which is expressing something in their life force. It's something wanting, wanting to experience, wanting to have. Money, the very word we use for it, kesef, which on one hand is the metal silver, but it also has to do with the verb, I desired. When I say, I want money, they say, really? You want a pile of papers and coins on your table? What we want is what we think money can get us, which is, which is boundless. So Mitzrayim was this land of desire. And we were brought down into Golis, into this land of desire. Why particularly there? Hashem promised Avram Avinu, after the slavery, v'acharechen yitzu b'chush gado. They are going to go out with lots of stuff, lots of possessions. And we find that when the Jews are leaving Egypt in a few pashas, Hashem asks Moshe, Daber Nob Aznea Um, please ask the people to go get from all their Egyptian neighbors, kesef and Klizov, gold and silver. And you know, we were thinking like if you finally they open the fence of the concentration camp, you know, I need to worry about taking somebody's silver tea set with me. Like, why do I need that? And Hashem said, I promised of Avinu. Please don't forget that. What's going on with it? So he said, all of this represents the spiritual powers of desire that were in the world. When Yosef was consolidating the money from all the civilized world at the time, he was bringing it all into Mitzrayim, all into the house of Paro. That was a preparation. The Jewish people would then transform all of their desires into their desire in Torah for mitzvahs, into Avodah Hashem, that is the great rechush gadol, the great wealth with which the Jews were supposed to leave Egypt. That they would take that and bring that with them to Har Sinai, bring that with them into history, that was what they were supposed to do. But, until that time, Mitzrayim was an extremely seductive place. It was a very, very powerful place. So, Yaakov and the Shvatim who came down had to lay the groundwork for the Jews' survival in such a land. How do you do it? So he says a fascinating thing. He says, Therefore, there was a transition from a life of tremendous suffering and sadness that Yaakov and the Shvatim went through all the way until the message came that Yosef was alive and he revealed himself and then they came down to Mitzrayim. Why? He says, Because when a person is deprived of something, Yaakov, who was the chosen of the Avos, the third of the Avos, the one who didn't have any children, who came out from him, who formed other nations, he had to live a life, as he describes it here, in suffering. And let's remember the effects of it as well. Aside from the suffering that he had, Yaakov Avinu lost the Ruach Hakodesh when it says we mentioned it the other week, right? When he was told that Yosef was alive, Vatchi Ruach Yaakov Avim. Suddenly he came alive again. He had Wi-Fi. The Ruach Hakodesh was back after 22 years, but those 22 years he didn't have it. Okay, and those 22 years he was in a level of sadness. Other svarim I saw wrote down the fact that he had no idea how his destiny would be fulfilled. When they told him that Yosef was dead, he said, I will go down with my son in mourning to the Sheol, to the deep depths. Rashi brings down, because he said, I was given this tradition that if none of my children would die in my lifetime, I would not see the gates of Gehinnom. Now, that's not over and not happening anymore. What does that mean? It's not just his worry of Gehinnom, no Gehinnom. It means I didn't fulfill the mission. This started, this was the Tikkun of the Chetod marishon that was getting rolling from Avram Avinu to Yitzchak to me to Yaakov. I built the 12 nations, but for some reason, something went wrong. And I failed. And the brothers also had such a sense. Their Avelus is not just seeing their father's sadness, but they were also part of that. And even though they knew that Yosef somehow someplace was alive, but they didn't know how they would find him, if it would come together, what was their avoda like in those years? So it was an avoda in sadness, like he says, with Sakvatinis. It was an avoda where Yaakov Avinu was not the Yaakov Avinu that they knew. He was a Yaakov Avinu without Ruach HaKodesh. And yet, they did their avoda in every way that they could. And we'll see the power of that in a second. Then, he says, and at that time, all the potential that the Shvatim have to live a life of tremendous joy and ruchness in the world, and to bring light into the world, it was all there, but it was all pinned up. But then, when they came out into the light, Yaakov Avinu came alive. He had the Ruach Hakodesh. It's all back. Everyone's here. Yosef's here. Binyamin's here. Yaakov's here. We're all together. It's back on track. The plan, the prophecy, all these things are here again, and they're alive. He says, therefore, he That life that they had there in Mitzrayim, in those 17 years, was a life of tremendous, vital, avod Hashem. Tremendous Simcha. Tremendous Kedusha. Okay? Not Yaakov Avinu playing board and, you know, in the, um, in the uh, retirement community. They were having a tish every day. For, you know, who knows what type of proportions it was. This was going on there. And he says you can compare this and he says it was like fire coming out compared to a volcano, he said. He said there are places in the world where fire is stored up under the ground and if it bursts out It bursts out in tremendous power. He says, This was Yaakov Avinu and the Shvatim and those Shivim Nefesh, those 70 that came to Mitzrayim. In Mitzrayim, they managed to do that. And he said, Why was that so necessary? Because when they ended up in the land of desires, in Mitzrayim, which was the land of all those desires, the only way it could be fought was to fight fire with fire. That they had to be able to serve Hashem with a tremendous joy and a tremendous enthusiasm, and he says then they were able to, so to speak, burn through those other desires like fire going through straw. And even though it didn't last, that was the beginning of the Jewish people of Mitzrayim. That was our beginnings, that was those 17 years. The 17 years were tov, and he says that the idea of tov of 17, he says, it's known, he knows it, so, right, is that, the, that means it's the Kal Naharin in Aramaic. Tov is the collection of all light that there is in the world. It says Hashem saw the light and said that it was good. Okay, and this was so important because Mitraim was a land of infinite Tumah, right, of all sorts of different things, corresponding and more powerful than that. There is a world of pleasures, there's a world of joys, there's a world of desires, that is so powerful that that's what's needed to be able to stand up to those things. And this is what they had at that point. This was what Yaakov Avinu planted in his children at that time. Now the Shemishmu finishes by saying that a small aspect of that that we have is really the transition from the six days of the week to Shabbos. He says the very fact sometime that during the week we're struggling and we're losing it, and we're just going and we're just slogging through, he says, is really there so that you'll be able to access Shabbos. Okay, let's remember again that Yaakov Avinu was viewed as not even being in Golas. Okay, when it said in the last week's parasha that he wanted to reveal the ketz to the Shvatim. Right, he says gather around, and I'll tell you what's going to be in Achris hayamim." So Rashi says he was going to reveal to them the ketz, the end of things, he lost the connection. So that seems like a very strange scene. First of all, what was he going to tell them? What was he going to tell them? It's going to be the 11th of Adar 5789, or something like that. That's a very long time to wait. That would be somewhat disheartening, right, if he gave them a date like that. And we know that these things can change. Be And the Zorah Kodesh asks, if Yaakov wanted to tell them, but wasn't able to tell them. So why does the Torah tell us that at all? Seems like a fairly useless exercise. So the says that he was able to give it to them. He was able to reveal it to them, but in a hidden way. What was he trying to reveal? So Rav Gedal says, and it's based on other him, that Yaakov Avinu managed to live in Mitzrayim as if he was not in golos golos is an illusion. Hashem is everywhere. And Hashem is inside of us. And Yaakov Avinu was able to live that reality, to break through all the curtains. And he wanted to give that to them, but that's not possible because the Jews had to be in galus. But he was able to give us access points. One of them was, it says, that when he asked them to gather together, when Jews gather together, so that already is an aspect of Geula that can happen within galus, And that's very much helped us make our way through galus. But this was what Yaakov Avinu broke through at that time. Es Yaakov, now it tells us in Shmos that they came down. Es Yaakov, beso Bou. So they were tethered. This is kind of the image that Shemesh Shmuel gives. Somebody who wants to dive deep into the water. So you better be tethered very strongly to something which is above the water. Yaakov Avinu shot up like a rocket out of the world of Mitzrayim. And we were connected to him. And as far down as we went down in Mitzrayim, and it went very, very much down, but we were connected to those initial years of Tov that Yaakov Avinu and the Shvatim brought there. And that was what enabled us to be able to survive. That reishis, that beginning of things, was there and was so important. So let's try to take a look at what we do with this. We find here two descriptions, if we look at these two types of years, Yaakov Avinu's years of suffering, Yaakov Avinu's years without Ruach HaKodesh, without being able to access Judaism the way he would, the feelings the way he would, all of us have times like this. This is what Svayim called the times of de Dekatnos, the small brain, right? You got no connection, you don't feel it, you don't understand it, it's dead, it's dry. And yet, what the Shemish Mo reveals to us is, all the fire was there. It just wasn't accessible. What did they do during those years? They didn't quit. We don't find Yaakov Avinu, right, just going off someplace, you know, to the Bahamas to open up a small bar and just, you know, live his retirement because he didn't make it as the third of the others. We don't find the Shvatim ditching out they were continuing on. They didn't know how it would work. They couldn't see how it would work, and yet they continued on. That powerful avodah then was what enabled when the conditions became right. And then suddenly everything was revealed and they were able to enable them to live in that tremendous simcha and hislavos and fire that was there. So we have to try to apply this to our lives as well. Okay? There are times in which there are going to be these and those. And we do not have control over our feelings, over our connection in Judaism. Sometimes there are external factors. The Slonim Rebbe uh, gave a series of talks. They published in a pamphlet to people. He called it to, in the first 10 years of marriage. He says, you have to get used to the fact you're probably going to feel very little in your Judaism during that time. He says it's just a simple equation. He says you're learning to live with another person. You may have little kids who are old enough to make a huge amount of craziness and can't help you out with anything. Financial things are usually still unstable, right? You're trying to get your career going or things like this. So he says Shabbos and may end up passing you by. You won't feel anything. You'll do your davening. You'll do your stuff. You won't feel it. He says don't be thrown off by that. That's a particular mode of avoda that's to be done then what should you do? Do it with all your strength as if you felt it. He said, and then there will be another time in life where all of that muscle that was built, all of that fire of the volcano, so to speak, will be able to come out. Know that it's a reality. Know that it's there. And even if you don't feel it and you're not able to connect to it. So the Shem Yishmuel gave us these two periods in the lives. And we think, wow, that awesome time in Mitzrayim, the 17 years of Tov, that really enabled the Jewish people to survive. But we have to remember that all the years before that, in Eretz Canaan, but when they weren't connected, and when things looked hopeless, and they were just trudging through, that was what enabled the years of Tov and Mitzrayim that helped Am Yisrael so much. So therefore, we have to know to reevaluate the different times in our life. We think that the best times in our lives are the ones when we feel it, when we're into it, when we have all those things, that may not be true. Sometimes the most important times in our life are the ones when we don't. Listen to the following. In Pesukah de Zimra, we quote in one of the Halukas of David Amelech, Halelu Shemesh V'oreach. Praise Hashem, sun and moon. So the Shomir Munim, right, of in Rata, the great tzaddik here in Yerushalayim, came from Hungary. He said... What is sun and moon? moon? Rather, we have Sundays and we have Mondays. We have our Sundays and we have our moon days. He says that means sometimes we have mochin, the godless. Sometimes we feel it, we see it, we get it. Sometimes we're in katnus, Sometimes it's very little. But which is which? Okay, we would think that the days of the sun are the ones when we're feeling it, we're doing it, we're seeing it. And the days of the moon are when things are kind of dim. He says, wrong. He says, the days of the sun are the days of your mochindakatnas, of the days when it's difficult and you don't feel things, because then you are shining to the world. You are transmitting to the world the way the sun, the sun transmits life to the world. Each of those actions that you do in those situations, that's when you're really being you. What are the days of the moon? When Hashem's shining on you and you're feeling it and you're surrounded by good friends and Simcha and understanding your Shiurim and singing nigunim, he says, that's when you're the moon. The moon absorbs light. The moon absorbs light to shine it later. Those are your moon days. Those aren't your sun days. There's a mode of praising Hashem through your Shemesh days, and there's a mode of praising Hashem through your moon days. So this is what well, we have to see, the process of Yetzias Mitzrayim is one that we go through constantly. We're constantly shifting it, doing it. The Svas says, in this week's parasha, on the Ve'ele Shmos, says, all of us have names. And Rashi brings down the comparison Chazal gives to the idea of stars having names. And interestingly, that sometimes the Pasuk refers to Hashem giving a name to an each individual star, Shemos, Sometimes the shame with one name. Says that's because each star is its own individual power with its own individual task, but each star is also part of the system of all stars. So too, each of us, we have our individual task, but we're also part of a bigger system. But even our individual tasks, he says, are constantly shifting and constantly shifting modes. So that if, and if somebody here knows how to do good special effects, this probably could be done, he said, inside of you, there are constant permutations of letters and nekudos happening as your different modes shift in life. If you could see this, suddenly all the letters of the aleph alephbez, the letters of your name and other letters that mix in and the different permutations and orders and nekudos of those are always changing, and you're really having different names going on as you go through this. He says, that's ve'elishmoz. Each of us come into our own mitzvah, and each of us have these different modes that we have to realize are happening to us. We have to know how to take advantage of them in their different ways and how to live them. Okay, so the takeaway from this is the following. First of all, like the Sfasemis, uh reminds people often, a few times he says it in there, is that when you do have one of those times when you're feeling it, when you're enjoying it, when you're connected, when you're elevated, he says, realize that that's not going to continue. Realize that that will be useful to you in the future. And you have to use those times to apply them to the times in which the opposite is happening and you feel nothing. On the other hand, realize that you can't truly take advantage and have the strength to take advantage of the times when the sun is shining, so to speak, when you're able to absorb so much, unless you've kept going, even when you're not feeling anything, as you go step-by-step in the times that are difficult, when the person isn't feeling. So these are the different modes that we have to have in life, and we have to know how to deal with them, and how to use them, we have to know to expect them, that they will come because there's a purpose to each of them. And not to judge if one is necessarily better than the other. It tells us also that sometimes the very longing that a person has is in preparation for a tremendous reunion that you're supposed to have with a mitzvah or with the Torah or with yourself later. You can look back, a person at some point felt that they were connected to Torah, then they felt distant. And then they got reconnected again, and they say, why did I have to have those stupid years in the middle when I was all messed up, when I wasn't connected? You would not be able to have that connection that you're having now without those years in which you were starving your soul, basically. That was the years of Yaakov Avinu when he was cut off. And then the explosion of that volcano came and could only come because of that. And that's true for many things which HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, deprives us of in life. But again, the deprivation is not only so that you'll really appreciate it when you get it. Right? Sometimes people say, why is it taking me so long to get married? Well, maybe Hashem is somebody really special for you and wants you to really appreciate her, and that's why you have to go so many years when you'll be single. So it's like... Okay, why do I have to be tortured in order to appreciate her? Why does it he just help me appreciate her and let me meet her now? Right? It's like, what does that have to be? But it's not just a period of starvation and torture. The avoda that you do during that time in which you're looking for something that you're not able to find, something that you very much want, that avoda is really laying the foundations for the time in which you will be united with that that you're looking for. And to learn to value and treasure those times as well. There's a story, uh, somebody I know, his father in the Holocaust, he tells this story often, he says that his father heard, he said when he first got out of the camp, he was just out of it for a period of months. There was some place he was just like lying down, he was broken physically, he was broken mentally, and suddenly something got his attention, somebody said that in one of the nearby towns that had had a large Jewish community, they have tefillin. There's like a Jewish organization there trying to help refugees, and in that place they have tefillin. And he came, he he went by foot, I think it was like a couple days to get to this town, and he ran and he saw somebody, he asked him, where is this place? And it was like a half hour before Shkia. and he burst into this place, and he yelled out, and he says, get me a tefillin, give me some tefillin. And they had like a pile of tefillin. Tefillin from lost Jews, from dead Jews, and he said he just kept putting on pair after pair until sunset. He said he didn't know which ones were kosher, which ones weren't, which one. This, uh, was all, he said, that putting on of tefillin was never, he, he never sensed anything like that. Now I'll say, okay, but why did he have to suffer in order to have that? But these are all part of the cycles in life. What that putting on of tefillin did for the world and for others was dependent somewhat on that time which was there on uh, that uh, deprivation and difficulty that was there. So, to try to understand it, to know that Hazarim bedima berina Yitzuru, right? What is that image? Hazarim badima A person's crying, but you're still planting. Okay? A person is crying, for whatever reason, this person's in a mode of crying, but he's planting while he's crying. He's not checking out. The results of that are berina Yitzaru, to harvest with song. So I want to share just to finish one of my favorite stories that relates to Pesach. Once you're getting into Shmos, I don't want to get anybody nervous about the cleaning, but, you know, this does kind of start us off with the mode. We got an extra Chodesh Adar this year. So the story about a man who um, always had a very bad Leil HaF Seder. Okay? This may ring a bell with some people. That He was always like behind the eight ball. If you would look at his house the night of Bredikas Chametz. Right? There were still pizza crusts and pretzels bouncing around the house at 9 o'clock at night. You know, he's desperately trying to get his family to clean up. Right? He does B'tikas Chometz at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, he collapses. He barely, you know, gets up in time to burn the Chometz. When it comes time for the Seder, he and his wife are like preparing things for the Seder all Erev Pesach afternoon. Right? He comes to Shul late at night comes home at the Seder, his kids want to say their things from school, he says please I can barely keep my eyes open, <laughs> Right? four cups, a bite of matzah, he falls asleep at the table and that's his Pesach, year after year. So one year he decides that's it. It's gonna change now, starting from the day after Pesach. He gathers the family together, he's got a wall chart, a wall chart of the yearly calendar. He says cleaning begins on Hanukkah. Okay. Chometz is only allowed in two rooms in the house. After Purim, we're all eating Pesach food. <laughs> Potatoes from Purim until Pesach. It is going to be ready. We are going to be ready. And he was a maniac. He was on top of them the entire time. And came Erev Pesach that year. He was a prince. He was sitting at the table with a cup of tea, with a stack of Hagodahs, writing about his favorite little perushim. Came time to check for the chametz. He did that. He went to sleep. He got a nice eight hours of sleep that night. Gets up in the morning, burns his chametz. Learns some more. Takes a nap. Comes to Leila Seder. He comes home from Shul. He said he felt like an eagle flying in the sky. He was just going. He was pouring out the Vrei He was singing all the songs. He was hugging his kids. You know, and even when the Seder was officially over, he kept going. Right, he said Shirashirim, shirim, and he learned midrashim and then in the morning he went to shul. He was there early and he davened and then after the daytime meal, this was in Chutzler, was the two days of Pesach, he said, okay, another seder coming tonight. I better take a nap so I'll be charged up for my flight of the eagle, part two. And he slipped into his room and he put down the shades and he went to sleep. Now, the only problem was he didn't tell anyone he was doing this. So he had been such a nut like nobody particularly knew where or what he was doing so it was time to go to shul at night and the children asked the mother you know where's abba and she said well he's probably in shul already you know because he's like on the soul train now and they, like he was there so okay so they went to shul but he wasn't there for davening and it's after meyer they ask people we can't find our father Maybe maybe went to the other shul they go them to the other shul nobody saw him they come home it's already getting a bit late the mother says where is he? They say, we don't know. You know, they start searching and going. 10.30 at night, somebody hears a snore. And they go into the room, and they shake him awake. And he says, time for mincha? I say, uh-uh. Time for Afrikomen. <laughs> it is very late. And he goes, no, what happened? What, what?" Anyways, he says, okay, what time is Chatzos? Here's what we got to do. We have to do the Seder. Okay, ready? Kadesh, Urchatz. Karpas, Yachatz. Afikomen, hide it wherever you want. I don't care. Magid, no time for questions, really. Let's say the stuff. Right? Rachza, Motzi Matzah, the meal. Everybody gets one spoon. How are we doing on the clock? Ten minutes. Everybody eat your Afikomen. Right? There you go. Done. And he was so broken. He was so disappointed. An entire year of preparing for Pesach. All lost at the last minute. So he was a very depressing person after that. His wife told him, um, you need to do something about this. You need to go to your Rebbe. I forget who the Rebbe was. And he came into his Rebbe's room and the Rebbe said to him, "Nu, how are your siddurim? He says, what can I say, Rebbe? One of them was wonderful. Another one really wasn't very good. And the Rebbe said, "Um, yeah, your second Seder was very, very special. He says, no, Rebbe, my, my first Seder was the special one. He says... No, your first Seder, you thought you were an eagle flying around in the sky. What's that have to do with Pesach? He says, your second Seder, you were entirely focused on doing what HaKadosh Baruch Hu needed you to do when he wanted you to do it. That's what Pesach's about. So again, it's important to realize that. The times of the Melch and the which are sent to us, are very, very vital times that Hashem gives us. And which sometimes we can accomplish more than the times when we're flying like the eagle. And when we are flying like an eagle, do remember that at some point you're gonna have to land and to deal with the chickens also. Okay, everyone have a wonderful evening, wonderful week, wonderful Shabbos.